All right, good morning, Gateway. Good morning. Yeah, the morning is much louder than the Saturday night service group of people. So, some of you have probably already noticed my feet have been shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, or as Bob likes to call them, official gateway preaching shoes. Uh, Bob gave me a full authority to use these shoes today. Let's open up at the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word, what you will provide today as we uh, learn what it means to know you. Uh, may your words be uh, brought forward and may you be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Renowned theologian Dr. Ryan Stokes five years ago made a presentation at the, South, at the Baptist Southwestern Seminary that just rocked the world of theologians. He brought something out about Christ that no one ever noticed before. Searching deep into the scriptures, he realized that Jesus Christ was more than just Messiah, more than just the Son of God, more than just the King and the Lord. Jesus Christ was a pirate. Kind of expected a few more amens than that, but I guess, you know, you'll have to have that point proven to you before you just generally accept it. One thing you should know about his presentation. One, he was a Baptist. Got that going for him. Two, it had three points in the sermon. And three, he used an acrostic. So imagine that. A sermon done by a Baptist using an acrostic with three points. That's a guarantee it has to be true just because of those facts behind it. But no, he actually went ahead and made the point. He took three different ways to look at it. And the first one, he took a look at what are the activities of Jesus. Who did Jesus hang out with? What did Jesus do? What were his activities? Well, first, he hung out with tax collectors. Matthew and little, wee little man Zacchaeus. He was where the money was. Who else hung out where the money was? Pirates. Jesus hung out with drunkards. How do, we, how do we know this? The scripture tells us. Pirates also hung out with drunkards, and we know this because of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. <laughs> Jesus hung out with prostitutes. And the pirates used to hang out with prostitutes, but Disneyland changed the ride, so I don't have the proof for that anymore. Jesus hung out with gluttons. Jesus hung out with a bunch of men who owned boats and were out on the sea a lot. Who else owned boats and was out on the sea a lot? Pirates. Jesus was constantly running into trouble with the law. Who else is constantly running in trouble with the law? Pirates. Thank you, finally, for starting to get this. So, just by his activities, we prove that Jesus is a pirate. I didn't even need any scripture, but oh, no, no. Ryan Stokes, he said you need to have scripture to prove it. So we went to point number two. What was Jesus's rhetoric? What did he talk about? Well, let's take a look at Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and buried it again. Who buries treasure? Pirates. Exactly. See, you guys are way better than the Saturday night group. Next verse. Again, it'll be like a man going on a journey and called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. 
Now, I don't want to confuse you with anything like context. So we're just going to jump a whole bunch of verses forward and go to this one. It says, the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Who hides money in the ground? Ah, see, this is a smarter group. I'll have to let Bob know. What kind of punishment did Jesus believe in? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Who drowned people in the depths of the sea? Pirates. See, this is easy. Well, if the, if the first two points didn't solve it and guarantee you'll believe it, how about point number three? We have the activities, the rhetoric, and the requirement. The acrostic even says R. I mean, this is easy. What are the requirements? What did Jesus expect from his followers? In fact, what did he demand his followers do? Luke twenty-two thirty-six. But let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Who tells his followers to buy a sword? Pirates. Last two verses. And what's cool about these ones is they're in context and they're back to back in the exact same passage. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Who would tell their followers to gouge out their eye and throw it away? Pirate. And then finally, keeping in context, if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was a pirate. So, other than being a whole lot of fun, there's actually a method to the madness. And what we're going to be talking about is two ways in which Moses asked God to reveal himself to Moses. And they were ended up being two ways in which we can know God. Oh, by the way, now you can actually erase the whole top part of the, the notes that you took. They're completely useless. But what's important is to understand, put a little note next to it that just says, Scripture twisting. How often people can take Scriptures and twist them to make them say something about Jesus that isn't true. There are two ways that Moses talks about through the relationship with God to reveal who God is. And Scripture twisting has taken some of those things... ...and made them say the exact opposite. But before we take a look at those actual two different ways... ...what I want to talk is how these two requests are prefaced. First in, Ma in Exodus 33, 12 and 13... ...Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people... ...but you still have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said... ...now pay attention to the last line here... ...I know you by name... ...and you have found, also found favor in my sight... At which point, he's answering the question God, uh, to, to God. Moses asks, will you show me your ways? Then, just a few verses later, he asks him, will you show me your glory? And the Lord answers and says, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So in both requests, God gives the exact same answer. Two things. I know you by name. And you have found favor in my sight. I'm going to quickly deal with the found favor in sight. 
Really, that's just about God's approval, his acceptance, his grace, and his mercy. Unfortunately, in the church today, some people have taken it within like the word of faith movement, have taken it to mean, oh, uh, God, is, I found favor in God's sight. Now you need to send me $21 million so I can buy a new jet. I'm going to be rich and famous because God, I have found favor in God's sight. Think about this for just a moment. Moses was told twice, just in these passages, that he had found favor in God's sight and Moses didn't make it to the promised land. Yet we're supposed to believe that if we just find favor in God's sight, we'll be perfectly wealthy, perfectly healthy. And if we're really good at television, get a $21 million Learjet. But the other one that I really want to spend a minute on, I find, this is, to me, this is one of the most beautiful things that the Bible brings out. And it shows itself several times. We'll take a look at it in the New Testament as well. God knows you by name. He knows everybody's name. But he knows you by name. There is an intimacy, a personal relationship, a love relationship this knowledge, I know you, is a loving, personal way. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about, He who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. If you have been led out by Christ, he knows you by name. And if that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what can. You should be so encouraged that the Lord God of the universe knows you by name. And his son calls you by name. That should make a difference as to what you know about yourself. So, getting back to our primary passage, now that we know that, God had found, that Moses had found favor in his side and that he knows him by name... We begin to answer the question, um, God begins to answer this question, how do you know me? I'll show you my ways. We'll take a look at uh, chapter 33, verse 14. Now, therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. We're going to kind of consider that verse a few times throughout the day because it actually says some really cool things about how God works in his law. Then we're going to jump real quick to, to answer the next question. It's knowing God in his glory. We'll go back real quick. Knowing God in his ways, knowing God in his glory. Now you've got like four or five of those things filled out. You're thinking this guy's going to be done really quick, man. We're already turning the page over. No, we're going backwards. He says, Moses says, show me your glory. He separates God's ways from his glory. And yet God responds... In the exact same way. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Moses is given this amazing opportunity to see the glory of God in a physical and tangible way. So God instructs Moses about this meeting he's going to have. He says, no one's allowed on the mountain. Don't even let the animals go up there. You need to hide up in this cleft. I'll put you in this cleft of the rock. And I'm even going to, because my glory is so magnificent, I'm going to put my hand over your face symbolically in a sense. And I'll walk past you. And then I'll pull my hand away and you'll see my receding glory. 
Whew. That's a lot to take in. That is a powerful moment. But before we get to that, you notice something in there? Does any of those little lines sound really familiar? If you read Romans, especially Romans chapter 9, you've seen those. I will show, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. One thing we need to understand when it comes to God's grace and his mercy, he is under no obligation to show them. He does them out of his own gracious and loving will. You don't earn it. Moses couldn't earn it. Moses couldn't buy it. But God showed it out of his own loving kindness towards Moses and his people and to us. So what is he talking about when he says, show me your ways? Really, ultimately, what he's talking about is his law. So the Lord tells Moses, okay, I want you to go get two tablets, just like the first tablets, and bring them to me, and I'll write my ways on there. I'll write my laws. And then kind of finishes, you know, because think about it this way. If you were just told that God is going to pass before you, you get to see God, just you, nobody else, there's a chance that pride could kind of, whoo, boy, I'm the, I'm, look, I'm the mediator. I'm the one mediator between God and his people. Wow. So any chance of any pride creeping up is kind of destroyed with the last line when he says, you know those tablets that you broke? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, rem- I remember. Humility necessary for understanding what it really means to know his ways and to know his glory. These laws and these statues and these ways are ways in which God reveals himself so that we can become more so like him and know him. In fact, when we take a look at that passage uh, we looked at just a second ago, it says, If I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. I've already found favor in your sight. Now show me your ways so I can find favor in your sight. Now in the New Testament, we call this sanctification. It's the process by which we become more and more like Christ. He he finds favor in us. He shows us his favor. He then tells us how we then should live so to become more like him. And the more we become like him, the more we find favor in his sight. And the more we find favor in his sight, the more we want to be like him. So we want to know how we're supposed to live to be like him so that we can find favor in his... Do you see the way that cycle goes? And it's interesting that it's brought up here. That he doesn't just say, show me your ways in order that I can find favor in your sight. He realized he already had God's favor. But he still wanted to know more. So we're going to take the first part and we're going to examine what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to have knowledge of God? And remember, this is vital to understanding who we are in Christ. So it starts with a warning. Hosea 6.4 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. He gives a pretty stern warning here. If you want to know me, you better know my word. In fact, my word is the only way that you can know me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. You cannot know the real, true God if you do not know his word. It is completely impossible, and we'll see later, dangerous. All right, so I know I need to know it, and I know I shouldn't forget it. 
But where do I start? Some would say, start Genesis 1-1. Other people say, oh no, start in John chapter 1. No one ever says, start in Proverbs 1-7. But you should. Because Proverbs 1-7 is going to tell you what your attitude needs to be before you start to study. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, the reverence, the awe. Not the hide in the corner away from God, but the realization that you are not God. And that you need to know God. That is your basic starting point. The fear, the reverence, the appreciation, and the love for the Lord. But then when you start to know this, we as a body and as individuals... In fact, when I first was putting this together, my whole concept of this next passage was to talk to dads. But then I started realizing... That it's not just dads that need to take step number two. And that next step is to pass that knowledge along. Now, I put this in here for Mike Collins. So I was kind of looking around, seeing where he's at, because he'd appreciate this. It says, this is the Shema. And it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today will be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How much are you supposed to talk to your kids about God and his word? All the time. When they're eating Fruit Loops, you can talk to them about God. When you're going for a walk, when you're disciplining them, when you're talking to them about school, when, they're, when you're t- taking them to the bus, it doesn't matter. The Bible's telling us that we should do it all the time. It should be such a part of who we are that these people should be able to see them between our eyes and wearing them on our hands. How much do we know the Lord? And how much do we pass that along? But what I was talking about, and as I went through this and started thinking, this congregation also needs to take part in this. Every Sunday morning, every Saturday night, there's great need for people to work in the children's department. Leah's always looking for people to work. That's one of the ways that you, as the other, another generation, can pass on the word of God to the next generation. Same with over back in the small children's and in the nursery area. You have the opportunity to, to share the knowledge of God with the next generation. This was not a request by God. He didn't say, ah, if you got some time, to him it's an all-consuming time. It's an all-consuming activity. It's what we are always to be doing. All right. So now we know we need it. Now we know we need to pass it along. But what is it that we need to know? Or where are we going to look for it? I read this quote the other day that kind of made me double take. And then I realized what he was saying was spot on. He says, we know That we need to know, but we need to know what we need to know. So what is it as we're studying that we need to figure out and begin? 2 Timothy 3.14 But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, your mother and your grandmother, if you're Timothy, and uh, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and that the man of God may be made complete, equipped for every good work. Please note what scripture is good for. It's good for reproof. It's good for teaching. It's good for correction and training in righteousness. But it's one of those last things where it says that the man of God may be complete. Five minutes ago, I brought out that word sanctification. Sanctification is a completion process. The idea of becoming more and more like Christ. It is through, according to Paul, the word of God that you become more and more like Christ and made complete. But ultimately, what do we need to know? If you can only know one thing today, what is it we need to know? Philippians 3.8 actually tells us this. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Technically, life begins at the cross. The starting point of that relationship started 2,000 years ago at the cross. 3,000 years ago, they looked forward to the cross. 2,000 years later, we look back to the cross. It is the central picture of what Scripture, the Old Testament, was all about and what the New Testament is all about. Everything centers on the cross. That is the beginning of where we start. But you find in a couple other passages we're going to look at real quick, Paul does something he doesn't normally do. He says a couple nice things to people. The first one was to Timothy in two, uh, Tim uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. He's complimenting Timothy here for doing something that a lot of people don't take the time to do. That's study the word. Lots of us read it. You know, lots of us like to do our morning devotions by, you know, turning the pages and pointing to something and going, oh, hey, Judas went out and killed himself. No, that's not going to work. Um, you know, oh, go and do likewise. No, that's probably not the best way to, that's not the best way to read my Bible. I need to find another way. No, he complimented him for studying his word. He rightly handled it. And then in Acts chapter 17, he said, now these Jews, these are the Jews that are from a, an area called Berea. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. Note, Paul is bringing them the gospel. They're studying the words to see if it's true. Why? Because they need to make sure that Paul's talking about the right God, the right Jesus that Paul is not talking to them about a pirate. But he's bringing them the truth. And they didn't do that by sitting around and having a committee and discussing it on the news. They found out what was true by reading the word and studying it. Now, you've, some people said, oh, the pirate thing, that's pretty funny. And obviously no one would ever fall for something as crazy as saying Jesus was a pirate. Well, I don't know. Kenneth Copeland says that God the Father is six foot two, weighs 215 pounds, and lives on a planet somewhere. Benny Hinn says there are nine parts to the Trinity. Two, three, it's see, tri, Trinity. Nine. It must be common core math. Um, <laughs> and, and as crazy and wacky and silly as that is, he also says that when God 
When Jesus stands before God the Father, he does so as a man. And when I stand before God the Father, I do so as a God. The number one selling woman pastor in the, in the country says that Jesus did not pay for our sins by dying on the cross. He had to go to hell and be tortured for three days in order for our sins to be forgiven. In fact, she went on to say that if at all it took was someone to die on a cross, anybody could have done it. One of the two criminals next to Jesus could have done it. Another televangelist once said that if he knew the Bible and he knew the word of faith like Jesus knew the word of faith, he could have been our sacrifice on the cross. All of a sudden, pirate doesn't sound so bad anymore. But as crazy as those things are, what about the person that comes and knocks on your door? What about the person you sit next to on the bus or the person you sit next to in school? What about the person you're listening to on a podcast? What about the crazy new guy that's standing up on the stage right now? Are you looking at the word and comparing? Are we being Bereans at all times? Paul commended the Bereans. Paul commended Timothy. But I've got a little interesting question for you. What were they reading? They were reading the Old Testament. Paul was bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were searching the Old Testament to make sure that Paul was right. Theologian Christopher Weisnogger once said, and I love this quote, the hardest thing about studying the Bible is that to understand the whole thing, you have to understand the little things. But the hard part is, to understand the little things, you kind of have to know the whole thing. And what Christopher was getting at is the idea of having to study consistently and being in the word consistently to understand what is the overall picture of scripture so that when you come across a difficult passage that you think oh it'd be really easy to take that out and make it say something it's not supposed to say because it doesn't match the overall picture our job is to make sure that we understand those little tiny things in the midst of the large and overarching full story of christ we must be continually in the Word. And one of the things we're going to be doing here at the church to help people with this is starting in the fall, we're going to be offering a new class called Knowing God Theology 101. It's going to be a very simplified class, but also a little bit more than just basic. So if you know the Word, this would be a great way for you to even expand some of the knowledge. We're going to look at the doctrine of God. We're going to discuss the Trinity, how to both understand it and to define it so that you're not talking like a heretic. We're going to talk about sanctification and justification and an election. And, and we're going to look at what does it mean to do, have the Lord's Supper? What is baptism? All those basic, fundamental, theological and doctrinal things. But oh no, doctrine, doctrine divides. Good. Because the word of God is like a two-edged sword. Dividing even bone and marrow. We need to have an understanding. And so the church is going to offer a class. There's a sign-up sheet actually in the back. Um, there's not a date set for it. So all you need to do is put your name, phone number, and an email address. And so when the date and the times and, and all that stuff are, are made available, everybody that wants to get the information will get that information. So they were looking at the Old Testament. How do we look at the Old Testament and find Christ? Well, there's this theological concept called types, types and shadows. And in types and shadows, you find these people, characters, and events in the Old Testament that either compare or contrast with a fulfillment in the New Testament, primarily that of Christ. 
Um, some of them are pretty obvious. They'll look at Moses, who is the one mediator between God and his people. Jesus is the mediator between God and his people. You know, it's the, some of those things are pretty simple. Some are more unique. The one I have always really appreciated is the one that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the first Adam and the last Adam. And he does so by not comparing them, but actually contrasting. Where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeds. I'm going to run through just a handful of them. I actually had four pages and narrowed it down to just three, or just a one page, just because of how much amazing information there is. But let's consider some of these. It says, the first Adam yielded to temptation in a garden. The last Adam beat temptation in a garden. The first Adam ate and a covenant was broken. The last Adam ate and a covenant was established. The first Adam tasted death from a tree. The last Adam tasted death on a tree. The first Adam hid from the face of God. The last Adam begged God not to hide his face. The first Adam blamed his bride. The last Adam took the blame for his bride. The first Adam brought thorns and thistles. The last Adam wore thorns and thistles. The first Adam brought a curse. The last Adam became a curse. The first Adam gained a wife when God opened man's side. The last Adam gained a wife when man opened God's side. That's just one page of four pages of these amazing contrastions between the first Adam and the last Adam. Where all those types came close but failed, Jesus Christ perfectly delivers on the promise. So our friends, the Bereans, were able to look at the scripture and say, what Paul is telling us is true. There's a great book called Jesus on Every Page. And it actually walks through the Old Testament and shows you where you find Jesus on every single page in the Old Testament. Now, I would love, and I've, I've, I'm actually saying this out loud, so that when Bob listens to this sermon, he will hear, I think, a great idea either for a class or even for a Sunday serve, uh, um, series would be to find Christ in the Old Testament. Walk through the Old Testament and find Christ on every single page. But I'm going to talk about just one more person because I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures found in the Old Testament. And that's the story of Isaac. Isaac was the beloved only son of Abraham. Jesus was the loved, begotten, only son of God. Isaac was born with a promised seed. Jesus was born as the promised seed. Isaac was born to be sacrificed. Jesus was born to be sacrificed. Isaac carried the wood of his sacrifice on his shoulders. Jesus bore the wood of his sacrifice on his shoulders. Isaac was to be uh, sacrificed on the mountains of Moriah on a hill that would be near what would later be the Temple Mount. Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, steps from the Temple Mount. Isaac was saved from sacrifice by a ram whose head was caught in thorns. Jesus Christ completed the sacrifice wearing a crown of thorns. That picture is beautiful. We can find Christ in every single page. So in the second question, 
we now have God, show me your glory. So this is when we have this uh, uh, running to, 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 or for Moses to run to the mountain and to see God pass before him. And he cuts the stones in two. And he climbs up early in the morning and the Lord descends in a cloud. And he says this. In the next verse he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But I will no, my, uh, no means uh, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. It is important when we see this now that when God shows up in his glory, he doesn't bring crazy with him. Um, you notice when God shows up in his glory, Moses isn't like... Uh, I don't know, laughing, shaking, barking, dancing, rolling on the ground. Um, he's not having gold dust flitter down from the air conditioning vents. He doesn't run through uh, fire tunnels. Uh, he doesn't do uh, leg lengthening parlor tricks. And he also doesn't do grave sucking. All right, I can tell by your faces that most of you have never heard of grave sucking. Grave sucking is actually a very popular thing within a church in Redding, California, in which the parishioners are told to go out and lay on the graves of old dead saints in order to suck up the anointing that supposedly is still floating around the grave sites. That's not what God is talking about when he says, you will experience my glory. If so, Jesus is a pirate. Moses experiences the glory of God in this beautiful and powerful way. But what God actually brings is grace. And he brings mercy. But he also brings judgment. And he brings condemnation. God is glorified in both his mercy and his grace and in his judgment and condemnation. Now, we don't like this part in the United States church. We think that when God's glory shows up, it's just the good stuff comes with it. And so you'll hear a line like, um, hell is just the absence of God. No, it's not. It's God in his full wrath. It's the presence of God in his wrath because according to scripture, God is glorified both in his mercy and his grace and in his judgment and in his condemnation. But the beautiful thing here is the contrast. How many generations received God's grace and mercy? Thousand generations. How many received the wrath and the judgment? Just three to four. Those aren't actually supposed to be taken as actual uh, um, literal terms. They're just comparisons. This is how much more gracious and merciful God the Father is. I will bless to a thousand generations. But my cursing and my judging is so limited to just a handful. Less than a handful. And it's important to understand that thousand within Scripture is used almost exclusively in some sort of symbolic way. It just means kind of a whole lot. Um, a lot of that has to do with Methuselah had never lived to even be a thousand at the oldest man ever at 969. So a thousand was just this unreachable number. Um, if not, we're going to have to run into a whole lot of trouble with the term a thousand. Because um, if God is literal when he uses a thousand, that means I get to own ca the cattle on hills 1001 and 1002... And then we can all fight out for the cattle on the rest of those hills. Because God only owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Or it says, I'll bless to a thousand generations. Well, that'd be a bummer if you're generation 1001. Guess we missed out on that one, God. Oh, bummer. 
Or a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Which always reminds me of the story of the guy that goes before God and he says, God, I hear that your word says that a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And if that's true, would that be like saying that a dollar is like a million dollars and a million dollars is like a dollar? Oh, okay. Okay, God, can I have a dollar? God responds, yes, tomorrow. So knowing that we know this about God's glory, when it shows up, it's everywhere. God's glory is manifested in his grace and mercy towards you and every single thing that you should see every day. How many actually woke up this morning? I'm thinking if you're sitting here, you probably actually woke up. But how many of you thought, I breathed all night while I was asleep? My heart beat all night while I was asleep. God's mercy and grace. And those who have small children, just the word sleep sounds great. That's God's mercy and his grace to you. You see it everywhere. You see it in the rushing, beautiful Columbia River. I see it when I hold my new one-year-old grandson. We find the mercy and the grace and the majesty and the glory of God when we sing holy, holy, holy. Or when you see that there's a star in our universe so large that its mass actually covers the entire orbit of Saturn. And if you take the greatest microscopes man has been able to make and the smallest, tiniest little microscopic organism, and there's detail, tiniest little detail in that. God's glory and majesty is shown in these things. It is everywhere. We find it, uh, I said we find it at weddings and at funerals. God's glory and his grace and his mercy. We find them on first dates and at last rites. We find it everywhere we go. God's graciousness and mercy to us is shown. We need to learn to recognize it because that's his glory. It is found everywhere. What's important, though, is now we have talked about his ways and his glory, we need to understand that both are necessary for redemption and sanctification. But I have this great... Uh, I love to recommend authors, and the guy that I'm reading now with, I'll admit an obsession for, is a guy named, by the name of N.D. Wilson. He just writes beautiful stuff. If, you're, if you have teenagers, young teens, he's written a great series of books called 100 Cupboards. Well, he was asked by several people, including his publisher, to say, what do you actually believe? And we're getting all these letters saying, oh, you know, some people think you're a Christian. What do you actually believe? And so he decided to write this four paragraphs um, that turned into 242 pages of what he believed. And he was talking about the glory of God. And he was trying to describe, how can I describe the glory of God to someone who doesn't understand it? So he said this, I live on a near-perfect sphere hurtling through space at around 67,000 miles per hour. Of course, this sphere of mine is also spinning while it hurdles, so tack on an extra thousand miles per hour at the fat parts. It's all tucked into this giant hurricane of stars. It can be freaky. Once a month or so, my wife will find me lying on the grass, burrowing white knuckles into the grass, trying not to fly away. Most of the time I manage, though, to keep my balance despite the speed, and I don't have to hold on with anything more than my toes. And every day, in our hands, we hold this little magic box that is made almost exclusively of a combination of lightning and sand. And in it is a magical brain that speaks an unknown language, sends that information 13,000 miles into the sky, 
sends it right back down within seconds so that the person sitting next to you's phone will buzz. We take, we take these things every single day. Keys. The sole purpose of this key is to make explosion inside a big metal box that we then drive around in. They take that metal box, they, they built that metal box by taking ore from a mountain in Montana, shipped it to a Mordor-like plant in Pennsylvania, took some more of that sand and lightning combination to put it in front of us so the wind doesn't hit our face. Then we fill it full of goo from the time of Noah. Then we also take some of these other boxes and make them so big that about the size of 10 school buses, put a higher, more powerful goo from the time of Noah in it. We shoot ourselves into the sky wearing nothing more than a guitar strap around our waist. If we ever told Frodo Baggins about this land in which we live, he would go, what kind of fantasy magical world do you live in? And yet this fantasy magical world is the same world where men took paper and pencil and told stories of a shire and of a lamppost in a snow-covered land. God's glory is found in these things. We need to begin to understand them. If we only, in our brains, figure out the knowledge of God, we do nothing more than have a mental ascent and don't know him. If all we do is have this glorified experiential sort of Christianity and don't even know who he is, we end up possibly with Jesus the pirate. Or worse yet, a false Christ and a false gospel and we're lost. So we ask ourselves every day, how do I know him? Do I know him? Do I know him? How do I know I know him? So I asked this question today with a video. Do you know him? The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know it? <laughs> my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He's God and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards 
the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. So, so um, after last night, someone said, you're kind of intense. I'm very intense about you and me, my family, my friends, knowing God. There is a passion in it that drives us to one specific thing. Now, um, I actually told Bob I was going to do this. Um, I cheated. I was supposed to stop at verse 7 of chapter 34. But when I read verse 8, I realized... The sermon is completely incomplete, and I would be remiss if I stopped there. Because after Moses finds out the ways of God, after Moses finds out and discovers and experiences the glory of God, Moses does this. He quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. If you know God in his ways, if you know God in his glory, join us and worship. <laughs> 